0: Welcome to How We Win.
1: All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We still have a lot to overcome, and we don't agonize;
0: we organize. Mariah is off, so joining me today is actress, activist, and my wife, Melinda McGraw. Hello. We talk about the Justice Department, Nunez's retirement, and what it's like to have a love scene with John Hamm.
1: <laughs> then you'll hear Stephen Mariah's powerful conversation with Army veteran former Missouri Secretary of State and host of the Majority 54 podcast, Jason Kander.
0: All of that, plus our reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson.
1: And I'm Melinda McGraw. And And this this is is How How We We Win. Win.
0: You know her from The X-Files, The West Wing, Mad Men, The Dark Knight, and so much more. She's played a campaign manager, a senator, the first lady, a pharmaceutical CEO, oh boy. but of course, her most challenging and rewarding role is that of my wife. Welcome, Melinda McGraw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm glad you said that, not me. I'm kidding. It's hey. easy being your wife. Aww. It's the easiest.
0: This is so fun towards the end of the year, getting to do this together and um. Uh, Mariah will be back next week, but it's a, it's a Pearson household takeover right now.
1: Yes, so. well, I apologize to Mariah's fans, of which I am the number one fan, but I'm going to do my best to keep her seat warm this week.
0: And you bring a lot of uh, political acumen, both real and pretend. Um, I remember when you were uh, about to play the role of a Republican campaign manager operative on the West Wing, last season of the West Wing. Uh
1: Yes, I played Alan Alda's uh, Republican campaign manager, Jane Braun, in that final season of West Wing. And I think, um, you know, Sorkin kind of saw, though it was in some ways an idealistic representation, we all should be idealistic about how the government works, and we should bring that idealism and the ideals of democracy to public service. Uh, so I think there's a reason West Wing is still um, in a lot of people's top 10 shows and people are still watching it. And, you know, it does feel like a distant memory, those stories. But um, we have to remind ourselves of what government looks like when it is functioning uh, more uh, more healthily.
0: Even if it's uh, pretend government functioning Correct. in a healthy way. Yeah. I remember, of course— Coming to visit you in the set and bringing Lucy and um, yeah. and being able to sit in the uh, Oval Office set yeah. there and Lucy yelling action for yeah, one of the scenes. Yeah, she was scenes. five.
1: I do remember that. She was yeah. five. Wow. Action and cut. They let her do that. It was Lucy
0: groups. being our daughter, if I didn't explain <laughs> that. <laughs> it's it's a, like, who's Lucy? you
1: ever heard this podcast <laughs> before, then you probably know Lucy is our daughter who's a freshman in college right now, yeah. which is another story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of stories, we do have some newsy stuff to get to. Um, Oh, boy. Yeah, there's uh, some mixed news this week and three things that I want to talk about. One, of course, uh, the Justice Department, uh, Merrick Garland, stepping up, filing a suit against Texas for its discriminatory gerrymandered maps. This from... Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta, when she was speaking at a press conference, Texas redistricting plan denies Black and Latino voters the equal opportunity to participate in the election process. And some aspects of the plan were created with discriminatory intent, yep. you think?
1: You think. But it's so nice to have it called out. She, I love her so much. Yeah. Um. And, you know, we'll see because, of course, the courts do defer to the states have a lot of rights when it comes to... Elections, but this is very important. That I think they're making a stand forcefully, and it gives a little comfort to those of us who are always wondering why are they sitting back and the urgency of voting right now. Which is my big, as a liberal, my biggest crazy-making thing is mm-hmm. why isn't that the number one thing always happening? So that's very you know promising.
0: Well, yeah, and Merrick Garland has not. Uh minced words with this as far as Congress goes. He has clearly stated the limits of his own power at the Justice Department to fight against this and um, said it's up to Congress to make some clear, defined laws with this, and that means – getting rid of the filibuster. And, and, you know, every single week we talk about this. And if you're not calling your reps yet, you got to do it. This This is
1: the moment. And, you know, listen, for him to basically almost be begging Congress to do something um, from him, I think that that's massive, because he is He doesn't beg very often. No, I mean, he, (laughs) he is making it as explicit. And, you know, it would he behoove them, behoven them <laughs> yes. to listen to him and to their constituents and those of us who are rattling the cages here and saying, now is the time.
0: It would be nice as we gear up and are organizing to uh, win in the midterms to not have to overcome these egregious, gerrymandered, flat-out racist, discriminatory maps.
1: And illegal, uh, you know, <laughs> that that's what we want. We want it to be clear that this is not just... Uh, obviously, an undermining of democracy and uh, a promotion of authoritarianism and corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, it is low hanging fruit in a lot of ways because it's so obvious. So, you know, it, you have to stand up to this as publicly as possible, as
0: often as possible. Yeah. Well said. Um, item number two that I'd like to talk about is uh, big national news, but uh, very big here in our home state of California, too. And that's. Nunez. yo dear. Nunez retiring. <laughs> um, Congressman Devin Nunez, former dairy farmer turned uh, really terrible, stupid Just, congressperson uh, who's so tied up in all of the Russia stuff that he had to actually be recused from I- any participation in, in those investigations, will probably be uh, shortly um, tied into this. New York District Court investigation yeah. as well. Now leaving Congress to head up Trump's social media company, which is already so under fitting. multiple investigations. Yeah, so just just
1: just running right straight into more sticky storm. He's so craven. I, I and and is he running away from what is he running from? Because obviously he's gonna he. It looked like he's gonna have a tough because of redistricting here in California, a tough election. But yeah. it's just so bizarre. He's running from the possibility of power to go under the cover of the MAGA tent of disinformation and uh, ill-gotten gains, it seems like.
0: Very good point. But Two good points you made there. Uh, one, he... Uh is in line to be chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which mm-hmm. is a very powerful committee. He was chair of the Intel Committee, so he's in uh, oh, these leadership imagine? positions. But you also mentioned uh, his chances of winning re-election. We have new maps in California, which redraw his district very unfavorably to Republicans, That's giving right. Democrats an edge there. So. Um, the only thing that makes me sad about him retiring is we don't have the opportunity to beat him yeah. in the midterms, which would be so so fun to just humiliate kick, him, to kick him out. But um, so you know, he's he's got a good gig. I'm sure he's getting paid a lot of money. Although good luck uh, collecting that money. Uh, from, I was going to say Trump. good
1: gig is a, <laughs> that is a subjective use of the word
0: good. Well, if you're a corrupt, you know. Right. Uh, Willing to do anything to subjugate the truth the, and yeah, an and authoritarian
1: in waiting. He is, uh, you know, an apparatchik of the of wow the Trump sycophant look that army. Up <laughs>
0: later, ask you well, what that means.
1: I mean, the isn't he the one that ran over and whispered to them every time that there was anything in Congress that related to that? I mean, he's just a terribly corrupt little fool. And good riddance. Don't let the congressional door hit you on your. Yes. Khakis. We're glad he's gone. Bye-bye.
0: The next thing that I want to talk about is something that popped up on the LA Times front page this morning, and that's that youths are facing a mental health crisis, which we talk about a lot on the show, Um, just the mental health crisis that we're all facing in our country right now, opioid Use is up, deaths from that are up, you know, and um, the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy on Tuesday issued a public health advisory on the mental health Mm. challenges confronting youths, which is a rare warning, and called to action to address what he called an emerging crisis exasperated by pandemic hardships. Mm. Some uh, really powerful things from the article. Um, symptoms of depression, again, this is an LA Times article. Mm-hmm. Symptoms of depression and anxiety have doubled during the pandemic, with 25% of youths experiencing depressive symptoms and 20% experiencing anxiety symptoms, according to Murphy's 53 yeah. page advisory. There also appears to be increases in negative emotions or behaviors such as impulsivity and irritability associated with conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, Here is uh, the really striking thing for us as parents of a young woman. In early 2021, emergency department visits in the United States for suspected suicide attempts were 51% higher for adolescent girls Mm. and 4% higher for adolescent boys compared to the same time period in early 2019.
1: Yeah, I I can't say that's, I mean, it's shocking, not terribly surprising in some ways, I think. Maybe even a lot of people listening are probably aware of people in their families and their communities um, who are suffering through more mental illness during this time. And they might also notice that there seems to be more girls and women. I do wonder sometimes about those statistics if girls are more likely to talk and or report their feelings around anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. But I also think, you know, we have to look at this systemic misogyny in our systems, mm-hmm. of uh, medical gaslighting, of uh, the, su- the societal pressures on women uh, and young women, obviously the social media aspects. We, you've talked before on the show about Instagram mm-hmm. and all of those things. And I think anxiety during the pandemic makes total sense. Isolation, social iso- isolation, wondering about our futures, and also under the Trump era in general, People of every age, I think, there has been an enormous increase that I've certainly noticed. I don't think that's
0: a secret. No, it, you know, and like you said, we've talked about this a lot. We talked about Instagram and the findings that Facebook had hidden the results of their studies that you know showed that they were harming young girls on their platforms, and they continue to do it anyway. This calls that out too. It calls for social media companies. Um, Schools, counselors, parents, everyone, to take this seriously and to take action now. So that's the hopeful part of this, and and why I'm so glad that um, our Surgeon General has brought this to the forefront with this declaration, yeah. because the whole purpose of it is for us to take action on immediate action that's and right. take this seriously because it's very, very, very serious.
1: A lot of people, um, I know that over the years you've talked to other parents too, and I have parents with younger kids or you know peers of Lucy and we talk about social media how do we handle this what age do you give, give your kid a phone all these kinds of things mm-hmm. and i even find for myself and for you know adults of every age that it, it's very important to try to stay as mindful as you can with number one with this social media right. because the it is our nature to compare ourselves to others But if we can just remind our children and one another and ourselves that people are posting, you know, the highlight reel of their lives. They're not posting their human messier moments. And don't compare other people's outsides to your insides. You can never do that. And that Instagram and all those things are the biggest trap of that. You can set things on your phone, like follow some things. So when you're going on your feed... There's some mindfulness things on there. I have the Thick Knot Han um, Plum Village app on mm. my phone. I have, I just got one this week, Unwinding Your Anxiety on my phone. So instead of giving myself, because I don't do so great with time limits, when I do go on, there's other things for me to choose. And I can say, hey, you know, I'm in line right now, I'm going to listen to this little five minute meditation. Uh, you know, or I'm going to listen to this gong or whatever. Right. But that's that's something I think it's really important to make sure our kids, our boys and our girls, know they can't compare themselves like
0: in th- that way. I think that's really great advice and important for all of us too, because we, uh, you know, unfortunately, when we turn on social media or media in general or the television or anything, we have to seek out stuff that is nurturing and you know, alleviating our stress because the news is always going to be the worst of it. The news is all, you know, uh, the media, media loves uh, the dirty laundry. They, they love the controversy. They love uh, whatever is, is getting us fired up. And so, um, and Twitter is just a cesspool of, (laughs) (laughs) of that. Right.
1: I remember um, Julie Louis-Dreyfus when Twitter was new, went on some talk show and, and I think it was David Letterman said, do you like Twitter? And she she said, Twitter's like going into a party and yelling at the top of your voice. <laughs> it's just yelling at each other. It's true. And it still it hasn't changed even though it can be very witty. It really hasn't changed.
0: It's true. So, I think the the biggest takeaway for all of us, especially heading into the holiday season right now, is to you know, make time to seek out the things that are nurturing in our lives. And when we talk about it in the context of our activism and our work as volunteers, we have uh, a big hill to climb. We've got a lot of work to do coming up into the midterms. And um, so we wanna make sure that we're best equipped to do that and taking care of ourselves. And so I think that's really good advice.
1: Yeah, curating your life experience on social media, it's similar to curating your life as far as you can. In terms of the choices you make, yeah. how much time you spend on those negative things.
0: Well, um, we also had a, a great conversation about mental health with uh, Jason Kander, mm-hmm. who is just an amazing person and one of my heroes and I've, I've been trying to get him on the show for so long and mariah and i had a great conversation with him and he just finished a book it's coming out this summer about his recovering from his own ptsd and uh, and the work he's done sharing that with other veterans and stuff so a really great conversation coming up that continues this thread of talking about mental health but before we do that let's talk about our hero of the week So, Melinda, you're our guest. What is uh, – who, I should say, is your Hero of the Week?
1: My Hero of the Week is someone who I think is a lot of people's hero every day, um, Stacey Abrams,
0: ah. Oh who
1: announced that she is indeed running again for governor of Georgia. I think going back into the fray with all of her powerful organizing and incredible uh, – I just – Nerves of steel and her impactful leadership is uh, gives a lot of people inspiration, and um, I'm just thrilled that she announced.
0: She is amazing. Of course, like full disclosure, swing left doesn't get involved in primaries. But no. come on, I mean, Stacey. No, no one's going to primary Stacey Abrams. She's going to be the gubernatorial right. nominee. She's and running. She can
1: be a hero regardless. And of she
0: is. That. She is our hero. And you know, we have a lot to overcome in Georgia. Uh, you know that those uh, Warnock is running, a course, uh, again to That's hold right. on to his Senate seat. Mm-hmm. It makes me so happy to know that we'll have the power of Stacey Abrams on right, that ticket. Right by his side, to, absolutely. Exactly, to, to help everyone there. And um, uh, she's great. One of my very favorite interviews we did last year absolutely. on this show was... can't
1: miss interview.
0: Can't miss, find our Stacey Abrams interview. I was so nervous for that. I was more nervous oh, about sure. that interview than any interview I've done, because I, I
1: yeah, I she's can so imagine. powerful. She's unflappable, knows herself so well, and she is just incredibly determined. I mean, she, and she's always said she wanted to be in the, you know, executive, and that's where she belongs. And I love that she knows herself, and she's super clear. Right. Yeah, you know, I should have won. I'm going to go back in there, even with all the thing, the hills to climb there and all of the ridiculous, corrupt stuff they're trying to pull in Georgia. Yeah. So Stacey Abrams
0: Woo-hoo! is really all of our hero of the week this week for jumping back in. Um, let's talk about our to-do list. So our, our big push, the end-of-the-year push, as you know from last week, it's the same. It's um, consider making a donation to Swing Left. That's right. You can donate on behalf of your family members or for your family members as a little Christmas gift, especially if you have an overly aggressive Republican family member. Yeah, a little stocking stuffer. Go ahead and stuff that stocking full of Swing Left. Full of blue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah. And we don't, you know, we rarely do any fundraising for the organization. We always raise money for For candidates and Mm -hmm. and that. But um, end of the year, we want to make sure that we're able to give you uh, really important, easy, uh, productive ways to make an impact on our democracy. That's what we do. So please consider going to swingleft.org and making a donation. Fantastic. So we've got our interview coming up. Um, Mariah it joins us for the interview with Jason Kander. And then after that, uh, Melinda and I will be back for our reasons for hope.
2: Today we're joined by Jason Kander. He's the co-host of the Majority Fifty Four podcast, which helps Americans who voted for progress talk sense into their friends and family. He's also a best-selling author, was the first millennial in the nation elected to a statewide office, founded Let America Vote, and is an outspoken advocate for helping veterans suffering from PTSD. Jason, uh, you sound busy. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with us today.
3: Well. well. Thanks. I'm yeah. not. I'm not quite as busy as I used to be, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I will still. I will still accept the thank you. So thank you <laughs> I don't
0: believe that, and uh, and I think I you probably either. have a lot of busyness ahead of you as well. Um, I'm. I'm a fan. I've personally always really admired you um, because you're someone that's always answered the call to service, whether it's been running for office, serving as the Missouri Secretary of State, your military service, of course. Um, You've stepped up where many don't. Where'd you get that trait from? And what first propelled you into public service?
3: Uh, Well, first of all, thanks. I I appreciate um, the kind words. Uh, I think it largely just came from how I was raised. Um, You know, my folks were not in politics or anything like that. Um, My family, not a political family, also not a military family, for the most part, other than you know, uh, like everybody else, my grandfather and my great grandfather went to war and then came home. Mm. Um, but for the most part, not, not a military family, not a, not a political family, but my, uh, in fact, if anything, I'd say we're like a theater family, wow. <laughs> um, but, uh, but not, not my immediate family. So my, my dad, uh, was a, uh, a juvenile probation officer and a, a, a police officer. And my mom was a juvenile probation officer. That's how they met. Um, and, uh, and so that was, you know, our house was public service oriented in that way, although it was never really put that way. And then growing up, uh, my folks took in, uh, friends of mine whose families were struggling and they became, we just call them my unofficial foster brothers. So my younger brother and I, uh, had, you know, these other kids who came into the house, these boys who were our very close friends who became our brothers. And again, it was never like explained to us. It was not like we sat down at the table and had a family meeting it was just like hey you know um justin and mel like things are maybe a little rocky in their house right now they're going to live here for a while it's like mm-hmm. oh great mm-hmm. and and so you know i i guess by example i just learned that um if you have a lot of opportunity you have a responsibility to uh, do for others and and so that that's how i grew up um and then uh when 9 11 happened i was in dc going to going to school at american university and getting ready to go to Georgetown for law school. And uh, I just knew right then I was gonna do what my grandfather and my great grandfather did. It was just like, well, there's gonna be a war. I'm a 21 year old man in America and America's going to war. So I'm going too. And, uh, and so I signed up um, and uh, did RTC during law school, got my commission and then volunteered um, to go to Afghanistan as a military intelligence officer. So didn't do the army lawyer thing. You know, and then, so that took everything. This is a long answer to a short question, but that took everything my folks kind of put in there as ingredients and kind of cooked it up into who I am now, right? What the Army made me. Um, combined with one other element, which was I had grown up very comfortable. So I had not grown up, um, if, you know, with the experience that a lot of people who do enter public service have, which is like there was no decision that a politician could make that would like take food off my family's table or really affect me in any way. Um, whereas there are a lot of people in public service who it is their childhood that, that drove them, in, and that's a a more common, and for good reason, motivation for people right. going in. For me, it wasn't like that. It was more like, I found myself in Afghanistan, and we didn't have equipment we needed, we didn't have armor for vehicles, and we were told, well, you know, a lot of that stuff's being sent to Iraq. Um, And that was the first time in my life I'd ever been on the receiving end of a decision that was made by people in politics for political reasons that negatively affected my life. And it just sort of um, opened my, I mean, I was already really interested in politics and thinking about running for office, but it completely changed my mindset Mm. because it allowed me to see, oh, well, when they cut people off of Medicaid, that's exactly the same thing. Or when, you know, so it... And and in my whole life, it's been a real through line for me. The idea that when people do things for political reasons that hurt other people, it it just really pisses me off. And uh, and I think it it comes from that experience.
0: That's, yeah. I, when we first launched this podcast, I was just, we were talking right before this. This is episode 114. Um, I had this naivete about like what I wanted, the stories I wanted to tell. And uh, it was the, you know, what propelled you into action. I wanted to hear people's origin stories. And mine was very much like yours, where I come from a position of privilege where a lot of these decisions weren't affecting me. And one of the first people that we interviewed um, was this amazing activist who um, uh, was undocumented, grew up with twelve brothers and sisters in the projects <laughs> you know and and i asked immediately asked this question, which seemed ridiculous, like what propelled you into
3: action right you know it's <laughs> yeah.
0: life or death stakes for so many Americans
3: right. so yeah, yeah i mean <clears throat> yeah it's I think the important thing is where you end up, but uh One thing I think my parents got a lot of things right. One thing I think they definitely got right is before they ever knew the term white privilege, they were very aware of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they made sure we were aware of it, even if we didn't really know the term, we were aware that we had it.
2: Uh, It seems like they set a a really powerful, just living by example that, that the example for you to follow um let's talk about majority 54 so this is a podcast to help people have better conversations with each other and help bridge the gap between all of us as a country you launched it took a little bit of a break and relaunched at a time when our divisions are honestly even deeper and sometimes they they feel insurmountable so uh yeah how's it going
3: yeah i really enjoy doing it um you know when we started it in 2017 and the reason we called it majority 54 is because you know at the time Trump had just been elected president and we were reminding people that 54% of the country had voted for somebody not named Donald Trump mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the idea behind it then and still now is that one-on-one conversations like the you know talking to your conservative aunt or like your independent but conservative leaning brother-in-law that those conversations are far more likely to convince people and to change their minds and bring them to the, to the progressive side than any television ad uh, ever will and and that people actually have a lot they're way more empowered than they realize and and so that's what the show is it's it's myself who you know i've run campaigns and, and won you know just i'm a progressive but i've won votes from uh, conservatives, uh, in Missouri, um, Ravi's run campaigns and lived, uh, through the South. He's from Staten Island, which is like the Missouri of New York city. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean it's represented by a Republican right now. And, yeah. Um, and, and so it's sort of our effort to not, not parrot any of the stuff we see on cable news, not give people, um, you know, stuff that they could have just read somewhere in the statistics they recited, but, but to talk about how do you actually bring people around and, and just as important, how do you maintain relationships that you want to maintain with people who maybe are, are getting uh, indoctrinated by Fox News and by Facebook, but, but like they're somebody who matters in your life? Um, and so that's what the show's about, but it's also become, uh, and I think the reason it remains so, so popular, as popular as it is, um, is that we're very willing to talk about arguments that the right makes and acknowledge them as effective which is different than acknowledging them as mm. right. Like we're, we're not right. like endorsing the argument, but I think that there's become a thing and Twitter has really um, been a big part of why this has happened. But there's become a thing on the left where we somehow mistake dismissing an argument or laughing at an argument for um, rebutting an argument. Uh, mm. And that's, our, that's a huge blind spot for us because yeah. it, it, it doesn't rebut the argument. It just comes across as smug. And so what Ravi and I try to do, it, for example, uh, I'll give you an example here in a second, but what we try to do is we try and say, okay, here's what their argument is. And instead of being like, let's make fun of it or just <laughs> let's rebut it, we also evaluate like what the likelihood is of it being effective and we try to do it objectively. And so a good example is recently you may have seen in the news where Josh Hawley, uh, the junior senator from my state, uh, gave a speech where he – you know, the headline was just that he said that um, – the Me Too movement and liberalism is uh, responsible for men. Uh, I think he put it, uh, all of America retreating into video games and porn. Now, it was, when you look at it that way, like, really dumb thing to say. When you look deeper into it, <laughs> it's still dumb. But <laughs> And then when you look even deeper, you find it's very dumb. Still dumb. <laughs> and, but then when you look a little deeper, you find it's really effective. And that's yeah. the thing. Because what we did is we went through and we we rebutted it, but we also explained how... Like, why would why would they make this argument? Like, Josh Hawley knows that that's kind of a silly argument. But what he also understands is that, you know, the demographic that, that they need to grab hold of and keep hold of is, is, is white men um, and to some extent also uh, Latino men. Um, you know, they want to make gains there. And they want to do that in the suburbs in particular. Um, and if they can do that, then what they can also do is they can bring with them a certain amount of uh, mostly white women who have a nostalgic view. These are the people who would have you know initially been um, interested in going along with a slogan before it had anything behind it of like mm-hmm. make America great again, right? right so so if that's your goal, well, and on top of that, if you are a Republican who's not going to be for the minimum wage, who's going to continue to be for right for work, right to work, who's going to oppose any sort of union, uh, organizing at all. Well, you can't say the reason that, that men in America are getting paid less and the reason that the jobs are being shipped overseas is all, all my policies as a Republican. But what you can do is you can say, oh no, it's because they're uh, they're trying to take away your masculinity. And then you can <laughs> redefine masculinity as a Republican archetype, right? Which is mm-hmm. like somebody who's not tolerant, uh, somebody who who isn't interested in kindness or in inclusivity. And if you can do that, well, Now you get to have your ridiculous corporate sponsored corporate, you know, uh, corporateocracy and not and not pay a price for it and still go after blue collar voters. And so like that, that's an example of like what we try to do that's a little different, which is instead of just going on and laughing at the guy, you know, I'm here in Missouri and I'm and I'm going like, this is going to work here. Mm -hmm. And I got I got to explain why, because I need the rest of my party to try to rebut it uh, alongside me. That's
0: some really good points. For, like, first thing is, it is easy to dunk on th- incredibly stupid statements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and don't but, get
3: me wrong. I did, I, I, like, I'm sure I did that on Twitter <laughs> about Holly, too. Like, yeah, of course. But, but your, your
0: point, these are not dumb people, even yeah. though they say really dumb things. Like you said, these are educated people. I mean, you look at uh, Kennedy who does this, like, bumpkin, like... Foghorn, at,
3: Leghorn impression. Foghorn, Leghorn. I say, Leghorn. I say,
0: yeah. Yeah, I say, I say, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, he's actually knows exactly what he's doing, and oh, he's yeah. what Oxford educated, and, um, you know, so the, these are not um, dumb people. The other thing that, uh, and I, I was listening to your your podcast uh, right before this, too, and you were talking a little bit about this, too, Um I'm going to nerd out a little bit, but uh, I was on the debate team. I was captain of my debate team. Thanks. Um, in high school, yeah, me too. No, and I'm with you. and so, as you know, the affirmative in a debate gets to define the terms. Mm-hmm. And as ridiculous as their definitions can be, if you don't rebut them, you will lose the
3: debate because they have the ability to define the terms. And I, I, I believe the the actual. I mean, if you really want to nerd out, <laughs> I believe the actual term we used to use was "silence is compliance." Right. Uh, That's right. right? So yeah. I, I'll never forget
0: debating, um, debating someone on a Thomas Jefferson quote that a little revolt every now and then is a good thing. And they were the affirmative. And I developed all these rebuttals about, you know, the pointless insurrections and the, uh, the French Revolution and it brought them right back to autocracy and all that. They defined revolt as vomiting, as throwing up. <laughs> And then yeah. their argument was about, like, you eat a bad sandwich with m- bad mayo and you throw up and you feel better. And it was such an asinine argument that yeah. I never touched it. That's I never crazy. even rebutted it. And I lost the debate because of that. So that's a long-winded, nerdy way that's, to say no, that we have to acknowledge. Nerdy, as, as yeah. <laughs> Thank you. As stupid as their arguments are, we really do have to acknowledge them.
3: It's a perfect analogy because when you think about like what Bannon said, which is you know his strategy was you flood the system with shit. I don't know if you can cuss on this, podcast, sure, but please do, I guess <laughs> the system was yeah, you can you flood the flood the uh, flood the system with shit, and that's that's what they do, so you know uh, that's why they don't have to be consistent like right now, uh, we talked on our podcast that came out today about how they have all these inconsistent arguments on um, omicron, right? like it's Biden isn't doing enough to control the virus. Biden is doing too much, ma- too many mandates. Right, like those two things don't go together. Um, you know, uh, the let's see, uh, the if if Trump were in office, he would have already developed a vaccine for this thing that we just discovered a few days ago. And and then finally, also
2: it's a hoax. <laughs> yeah, and
3: finally it's a hoax, and you don't yeah. need a vaccine, and that's super frustrating. And what we were talking about yesterday is. Don't take comfort in, in, too much comfort in the idea that because those things are so inconsistent, that therefore we're going to win the argument and people are going to see that inconsistency. Because what they're doing is, it's just basic political insurgency. They're in the minority. The The Biden uh, campaign, the Biden-Harris campaign, its main argument was, we will be competent and we will fix these problems. Now, it is the Republicans in Congress, for the most part, who have kept them from being able to do the things they want to do. But that's, that's not going to matter to a lot of voters, right? And the Republicans know that. So just so chaos, say inconsistent stuff, it doesn't matter because you're not in the majority. You're not going to be held accountable for it. And we, that is super frustrating. We should call them out on it. But we shouldn't pretend that it won't work because it can. <laughs> Sorry, this is not super hopeful. Uh, <laughs> I, this is the part where I say these are the things we have to acknowledge so that we can address them, which is what we do on our show. Like we talk about, okay, so what do we do about that? Well, that's important. Well,
2: yeah, that's important, too. But let's also I mean, you are doing things that are hopeful and helpful. <laughs> you started the voting rights group, Let America Vote. Uh, it's merged with N Citizens United PAC. As you pointed out, we're seeing the GOP flat out lie to us. They're also trying to destroy our democracy in state houses, not only by passing voter suppression laws and gerrymandering districts, but also by installing Trump uh, big lie pushers in into positions that could overturn election results so how do we this is where you give us the hope how do we mm-hmm. as citizens fight back against this is
3: where you then? do or don't give us the hope i don't know sure, no. no no there's there's two reasons to be hopeful about this i mean one is the reason we started let america vote in the first place was to create political consequences for voter suppression mm-hmm. you know it's hard it's like almost hard to remember now that um few years ago, voter suppression, not only was it not really an issue in American politics, it was just something most people weren't even aware of. It was a term people would, you know, you had to be like a very active political Democrat um, to even be familiar with it. And Mm -hmm. heck, when I was Secretary of State starting in, uh, you know, what, January of 2013, majority of people, even in our party, thought that voter fraud was a huge problem and had never even heard of voter suppression, right? Hmm. So that's how quickly things have changed because of how aggressively, in part because of how aggressively the Republicans have, have ramped up their voter suppression efforts. Um, now, what we did is we said, okay, up until now, the only place where voter suppression has been fought has been in the court of law. Right. And we were having a lot of success with that until um, you know, 2016 happened and they got to appoint a lot of judges. And what we did is we said, all right. Starting in 2017, we said we've now got to take this to the court of public opinion because up until then the conventional wisdom had been you can't win an argument on photo ID like it's just too difficult to explain it. It's if you're if you're on that argument you're losing.
0: Mm. Well,
3: I had won the secretary of state's race in Missouri in 2012, running ads uh, against photo ID like going on offense, and so the idea was okay um, when you win a lawsuit against a photo ID law, what happens is the state senator whoever who pushed it like one they probably come from a pretty safe area and two like politically safe district for them Mm -hmm. but two by the time you win the lawsuit like a year and a half has gone by like voters aren't going to hold them responsible for it so our our whole concept was let's just get an army of volunteers out there and let's pick the people who voted the wrong way on voting rights and let's use whatever issue we need to and as much manpower manpower as we need to, and let's just beat them and make it mm. clear to them that had you had you just taken a pass on voting for voter suppression, we wouldn't have been sending you know, people all over your state rep district to beat you. And we did that in, in, all over the country with thousands of volunteers in 17 and 18 uh, in particular to start with. And it had a huge impact. We helped flip some state legislatures. So that's the first thing, and that, can, that needs to continue to happen. And now it's an actual political issue that motivates uh, our side as well, and that's good. And then the second part is I just think we need to openly embrace – like the happy circumstance of we are the party of actually being for democracy and we happen Mm -hmm. to be called the democratic party. And, and I I think that it should just be a firm part of our messaging every, everywhere in the country that like there's the democratic party and there's the anti-democratic party. Like Mm -hmm. they do this thing where they, they call us the Democrat party, right? They refuse to. And then, you know, for a while people thought they were messing with the Republicans by calling the Republic party. Like, no, that's not the same thing. There's a reason that they left off the IC for so long. They know that there's power in that word. And now that they are the anti-democratic party, that to me is, is a huge cudgel that we should be using mm-hmm. uh, with voters yeah. who do care about America and these institutions and believe in democracy. We should be making the argument every day that there's a democratic party and an anti-democratic party.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, we talked so much about ending the filibuster to uh, to pass these important voting rights laws. And, uh, and I hope we can carve it out and do that because we do have uh, what seems like a very large hill to climb for the midterms. I know we can do it because I've seen what our volunteers have been able to do even in the face of huge obstacles uh, in a global pandemic. But, um, but it would sure be nice not to have to uh, battle against everything all the time. Um, yeah. I, I want to switch gears uh, really quickly um, because you've helped a lot of veterans and a lot of people in general by being open about your PTSD. Um, we do have a mental health crisis in our country right now and it's been made, of course, worse by the pandemic. What do we need to do as a country to better deal with this mental health crisis?
3: Um, well- And I understand you a policy- have a new book that you just finished too, congratulations. Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, it'll thanks. come out in July. Yeah, it's about, it's it's a memoir about mental health um, and my journey. Um, from a policy perspective, obviously like, there's just, there are people with more expertise than me um but we could we could spend a lot more on mental health we could make it so that i mean right now like how many people do you meet who need therapy and they're like i just can't afford it i mean right and and we've got to get to a point where we don't think of that as any differently than than we do like somebody who's like hey, you know i broke my arm <laughs> you know it's like well your arm seems to be broken well i know but i can't afford to get a cast like That would be ridiculous, right? Um, And and it was the case and still is the case for many people in America. And we think it's ridiculous. And we should think it's equally ridiculous um, when it comes to addressing mental health. Uh, Second, from a messaging perspective, what I think we need to get across to more people is the value of mental health treatment, like how effective it can be. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, in in the space I sort of occupy in this world, uh, I think about the fact that there's been a very steady drumbeat from the VA and from veterans advocacy organizations generally over the last several years and from the military that has said, uh, you know, there's nothing weak about asking for help, that it, it takes strength, not, not weakness to, to go get help for, for your mental health. And, you know, I think we should continue that drumbeat, but I think that that message has largely been heard. Now, whether everybody has internalized it or not, it's been heard. There, there aren't many people who have not heard that. So what I think is the next step in that and that we don't do enough of is holding up examples uh, of folks who have been successful in getting mental health treatment. Because if you think about it, like in my world, PTSD, combat PTSD, um, when, when you think about it, like whether fictional or nonfiction, like on screen or on the news, how many portrayals do you really see of people who have... Been through a traumatic event, have post-traumatic stress disorder, and are doing better. (laughs) Like Mm. you don't every every portrayal you see, particularly in movies or on TV, of a veteran, for instance, with PTSD, they are either abusing drugs or abusing their wife or robbing a bank or you know whatever. Uh, Yeah. And sometimes all three in the same movie. What they're not ever portrayed as is somebody who's already been through successful Mm -hmm. mental health treatment. And the reason this is such a big deal. To me the reason i realized it's such a big deal is because i was like four or five months into treatment at the va i was going weekly uh and i was four or five months in and i was was doing much better and i was starting to really question the validity of my diagnosis in the first place because Mm -hmm. i didn't know of any examples of people who got better I, i knew a few guys personally who had kind of steered me toward it but Uh, you know, I'd never seen anything in the movies or anything like that. And I remember I went into a therapy appointment and I said to my therapist, I said, you know, did I even have PTSD or was I just like an asshole? I was like, because (laughs) I I, I said, because like everybody else seems to not get better. And that's when he said, yeah, this is the problem is that there's no portrayals of it so people don't know you can get better. And then he took out all these studies and research from the VA that showed that the vast majority of people who committed to the program, who did the homework they were given by their therapist, the vast majority of them got to a point where the symptoms were no longer disruptive to their life. Mm. Um, And I I had, and literally I was five months into therapy before I found that out, that Mm. like you're supposed to get better when Mm. when you commit to it. And so I think a huge part of the mental health crisis in this country is that even people who who no longer attach a stigma to people who get help for mental health, even those people are really skeptical about whether it would ever work for them. And uh, and what that means is, is if you're somebody who was who like me, who spent 10 years uh, denying to themselves and to the world that they had PTSD, you're doing it because a diagnosis of PTSD seems like like a terminal diagnosis, like certainly for your career, it feels like, well, I'll never be able to do anything career wise again, if I'm diagnosed Mm -hmm. with PTSD and then possibly for your life, because what do you, what have you seen about PTSD is like people with PTSD have all these problems that eventually end in suicide in too many cases. Well, no, the truth is that's, that's untreated PTSD actually. And, and so another long answer to a short question, but I actually think that the biggest thing we have to do, uh, to address the mental health crisis is make treatment more readily available and, and get the message out there that it's also really effective. Because people will do it if they think it's going to work.
2: Yeah. Um, I know that you're featured in a, in a documentary and you have this book coming out. Are you showing the world somebody who has recovered from PTSD? Are you, that, are you becoming that example that you were looking for?
3: Yeah, no, that, that, that's not the uh, role I envisioned originally for myself mm-hmm. in public service. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one that uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to fill now. I mean, I, I do feel, it's funny, when I first started getting therapy at the VA, um, I remember I was trying really hard to avoid any, there was a lot of coverage of my decision to, to do that. And, and I was trying not to read it, not, not for any big reason other than I was just trying to focus really hard on treatment and not on like how the world saw my treatment, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And, um, but I did see an article in the Boston globe where uh, an eminent like expert in the field referred to me as somebody who would become the, uh, the poster child for post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really bothered by that because it put a lot of pressure on me. Yeah. And then now years later, um, that's that is what I want to do, because like the book I just wrote is literally just as I was writing, it I was just thinking, what did I need to read, but but just didn't exist Mm-mm. a decade ago? Yeah. And and ha- like, what what did I need to read that would have convinced me to go get treatment before things got worse and worse and worse? So that's the book I tried to write is a memoir about my experience, but also one that just that's that, that I, you know, 10 11 years ago could have read and been motivated to go get help and then as far as the documentary yeah i mean when when that documentary crew and it's not available yet it's at film festivals and stuff so hopefully later this year people will be able to see it what's it called it's called here is better and when they first came to me it was before i was i took like 10 months off from doing any public anything and i and i knew this wasn't going to come out for a long time so i said to them, look i'll participate in it but only if if you can assure me that the story you're telling is a a positive story and not what I refer to as PTSD porn, which is like, you know, the, the, just most of the portrayals out there of just somebody who is losing their mind and having flashbacks all the time, like somebody in the throes of it and not somebody addressing it. And I said, look, if, if you're, if you're telling the story of people who are addressing it and getting better, like that's a story I'm happy to be a part of telling. And so that's, that's what they were doing.
0: That's great. I mean, um, I uh, I know from my own experience as a recovering alcoholic, been sober mm-hmm. for I'm really dating myself now, but for 31 years. That's awesome. <laughs> so man. I got sober very that's young. Not, that's not dating
3: yourself. That's, you should be proud of that. I'm got, sure you. Are.
0: I got sober when I was two, so um, <laughs> I had a hard hard first couple of years of my life. But um, yeah. Uh, but kidding aside, um, and what we know from 12-step programs and from uh, you know group. Therapy programs. There's no substitute for someone sharing their personal experiences with someone else that's going through the same thing. Uh, It's really powerful. So I'm grateful
3: that you're doing that, and and I I hope more people do that as well. Well, thanks. Well, I also think you know, given your audience, like I think there, I think politics is one of those fields where. people are really likely to not address as I was to, to avoid addressing mental health issues because like appearances are such a big part of things, right? Like right. Yeah. everybody wants to look like they're completely together all the time. And I know I did. And, um, and that, that's one of the reasons that I put it off for way too long. Well,
0: uh, that was some very hopeful stuff that you were talking about. So um, a a good segue into our final question that we ask all of our guests on this show, what gives you the most hope for the future?
3: Uh, Yeah, I I bet this is not an answer. I bet bet this is not a totally original answer. Um, It's the next generation coming up. It's it's Gen Z and millennials because um, it's just so much of this stuff, uh, the, the really backward stuff you hear from the right, it's just ridiculous to a lot of this generation. And like going back to the example of Josh Hawley and the, the masculinity thing and everything. Right. Um, you know, when I when I watch him talk about it, what always strikes me is this is a guy who's about my age, I'm forty, playing to people who are twenty and thirty years older than us. And I'm the whole time I'm thinking like, he's such an exception. You know, he's he's so far outside the norm in our generation what's he going to do in you know 15 years like and and that that's what gives me hope is that like you know i like i think the voting age should be 16 because with the yeah. with the amount of information okay. that people have available to them now and and, and everything I, mm-hmm. I don't know why we wouldn't have people voting at 16 so um i mean i know why it's the same reason they want to make it harder for all sorts of right. um, groups to vote but uh so that's what makes me hopeful is i, I just feel like the The rising generation just gets it about so many things and finds so many of the hang ups and i i I'm this sounds like an old guy thing to say. I'm technically a millennial by like i don't know six months or something um, so you know, so I would say our generations I think get it and find a lot of the hang ups of previous generations just trivial.
0: Don't sleep on Gen X, okay if you yeah, want just no, skip over too. us, but you know we're. We're still For, forgotten right. generation. <laughs> the
2: forgotten. Um, but yeah, I'm an elder millennial too with my avocado toast and mm-hmm. yeah. student loans. And so, yes, it's definitely <laughs> playing to a, a certain belief about us that's not quite accurate. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, and, it, you know, it was very hopeful.
3: Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, I try to be. <laughs> so, there's lots to be hopeful about. I mean, at the end of the day, like. like, yeah, the 2022 elections are coming around in in a little less than a year. But, I mean, sometimes you got to step back and go, hey, uh, we actually control the White House, the Senate, and the House. Um, And for as frustrating as that by itself can be at times, like, beats the shit out of the alternative. So there's an awful lot of reason to be hopeful. Absolutely. Perfect note to
0: end it on. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Melinda, I love having you on the show with it's me. It's super fun. It's so fun. I wish
1: Mariah was here too, though.
0: That would be fun. The three of us. Yeah. Um, I would
1: love her so much. And
0: Well, you'll have to come back uh, and and do it again with Mariah here. Uh, we have just our reasons for hope uh, to share. So I'll go first. I'll model good reasoning for hoping. Um we were watching one of your favorite shows, Morning Joe, this morning.
1: Yeah. I do like watching that. That Sometimes it's a train wreck, but I don't know why I find it so entertaining.
0: Yeah, and, and there was a really, really great segment about uh, the rainforests yes. in Puerto Rico that have come roaring back. Um, the the rainforests in Puerto Rico had been decimated by years of farming and deforestation mm-hmm. And I guess they'd gotten down to about 6% Incredible. of uh, total rainforest um, remaining. remaining, yeah. And, uh, and now they're up in like 65% of the rainforest. It is like back and thriving. And it's a combination of some different factors um, of uh, more farming going into industrial jobs and people leaving the farming industry, but also some really intentional ways that the government has learned to support both farming and the rainforest and finding that they're not mutually exclusive. And it really lays out a great roadmap for how countries with rainforest, if they have the the will, will. uh, can revitalize our planet, so literally let our planet thrive.
1: It was like watching um, the end of Wally when they all come back <laughs> and, you know, they're planting and it's suddenly this barren place is growing back. And, yeah. and and you know, the um, dynamic kind of innovation of these, sci- these scientists on the ground who are saying, look how we can farm alongside allowing this to come back and being really assertive and the, the people in the government really backing them up and giving them the power to do that. It's so inspiring.
0: It's really inspiring. inspiring. Very, very hopeful. And, um, you know, last week we did a deep dive on COP26 with Assemblymember Laura Friedman. If you haven't heard that, she was there and gave us kind of the inside scoop there. Um, I I hope that other countries will will do this too, and especially South America, where we have where we're losing so much of the Amazon, Um, but very hopeful. Uh, What about you? Menders, what's your reason for hope?
1: Well, uh, this weekend we got a chance to virtually watch the Dipsif um, <laughs> award ceremony. Dipsif is our Democratic Party, Democratic Party of the valley. San Fernando Valley, right. our local Democratic chapter, which is very, very large. It's an extremely large mm-hmm. area. It was an honoring of volunteers from different chapters around the valley. And it was just so beautiful to see so many people who were honored are newer to activism and volunteering. And like th- I
0: started in 2016. It, yes,
1: just like you, class of 2016, you like to say. And watching people step in and do what you talk about, leaning in out of their comfort zone and into this, the arena, really, of mm-hmm. just connecting with other citizens and internalizing the power that we all have as citizens, seeing it as an opportunity to give back, seeing it as a responsibility, and their passion and their love for it and their devotion to it. And they just rise as leaders almost. It gives me so much hope that there's so many of them, they're still coming in, that even in this blue, blue state, we have all this work to do Yes. Always to keep our democracy alive, not just now, but always from the beginning and, and ever shall it be, to keep a democracy alive and flourishing, people have to step in. It just gives me so much hope uh, that your listeners are volunteers, that you know everyone is still engaged. And Listen, I, talk about anxiety. I have days when I feel completely overwhelmed. Uh, when Trump is elected, I really needed to take a beat. I felt so blindsided and scared. I have moments where I go into a lot of anxiety about, you know, has it ever been this bad? There's this, you know, but the thing that brings me back is knowing there's always opportunities. There's always something to do. And all of this massive army of citizens who lead with love and their vision, the ideals of democracy and equality and justice for every citizen. And it it just just fills me with so much hope that we are can make it happen.
0: Love that. What a wonderful note of course all the volunteers and our listeners what gives me hope every every single yes. day too. So thank you for sharing that Melinda McGraw, the great thank Melinda you, McGraw. Thanks for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. What's your reason for hope? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at swingleft.org or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course... Go to swingleft.org and volunteer and consider making a donation here at the end of the year. We really appreciate you being here with us. Mariah will be back next Wednesday. We'll see you then. Bye.